Well, I'm going to read today's teaching text, and uh, we'll get into this here. It comes from Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 31 and into chapter 9. And it says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his souls? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've heard it said that you and I are the sum total of the decisions that we make in a day. And I would argue that we are that, partly. Um, but also, um, we should be cognizant of the fact that we are partly the sum total of the decisions other people make and that fall on us. But what this means is that every decision, large or small, that we make is a vie or a vote for the kind of person we want to be, right? So uh, we know this on a, on a big scale. Um, should I marry this person or not, right? That would change the trajectory of your life. Should I take this job? Should I move? Those are sort of bigger ideas that would change the trajectory of your life, right? Those little things, or those big things add up. But also, the thousand little things that you do every day also add up to the person that you're becoming, right? Should I hit the snooze button today? Should I go to church? Should I buy the $7.50 latte, right? Y'all, the other day, I got oat milk, and it was $1.50 upcharge. I was like, am I getting the whole, am I getting like the whole bottle, you know? And so, should I text the person back, or should I ignore them, right? These little things add up to the person we are becoming. And in our passage today, what Jesus is doing is he's presenting, he's presenting us with clarity, Right? I, don't, I, w- I don't want to say that he's been ambiguous up to this point in Mark's gospel, but he's adding clarity as to who he desires his followers to be and how they are to live. And so those little decisions, should I buy the $7.50 latte, are actually brought through a passage like this, and those tiny decisions of our lives um, are shaped by something bigger. And this passage in Scripture today has the ability um, to really shape what that is. What is the nature and the role of a follower of Jesus? How should we make decisions? What should that look like? I don't know if you've ever had a job um, without clear expectations, or maybe you like had a job, but you never had a job description, and so you're frustrated, right? How am I supposed to do this? Because the expectations are unclear, they're unspoken, or they're unrealistic. Anybody had that job before? Yes, okay. A lot of us have had a job like that. And we're left with the frustration of, what's expected of me? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to make the decisions? And Jesus is, um, where we are in Mark's gospel, Jesus is almost pausing to say, I want to set the expectations clearly for you so you know how to make the decisions in your life. 
And so where we've been in Mark's gospel, we've been talking about this over and over and over again, but it's like a fulcrum point, right? We're about to cut a sort of plateau. Uh, Mark chapters one through nine, the question has been, who is Jesus? And Jesus is continually revealing himself. Who is Jesus? He's healer. He's spending time with those on uh, the margins. He's feeding the crowds. He's teaching, even though in, the, in, in Mark's gospel, he's really, we don't get the content of what he's teaching. And then all of a sudden, here is the turn. Jesus is going to be heading towards Jerusalem, and the question then becomes, why did Jesus come? What, what did he come to do? And in verse 32, I love this little phrase here. It says, he said this plainly. And so what I want you to do, if you have your phone or whatever today, pull up Mark chapter 8. Some of it will be on the screen, but it will be helpful for you to kind of flip along as I walk through the story. And what Jesus wants to do here is um, not only add clarity but he's, he's actually giving them a different um, like social location that he's heading. He's giving clarity to that as well. So here's where verse 31 begins. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And so the previous set of um, verses, which you can see on your phone there, is that um, the disciples are with Jesus, and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And, you know, they start filtering through Old Testament characters and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter is courageous and bold, and he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited king. You are the anointed one, right? He's, he's picking up this Old Testament imagery, and he's saying, this is actually who you are, and I'm telling people, this is why you came. And it's this, um, this is a major moment of declaration of who Jesus is in Mark's gospel. And so verse 31 is actually a response to that. Jesus says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, we understand what's going on because we, we have the, the full story. We, we know the ending, right? Like, we already watched this movie. The disciples are in the middle of the movie, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just said, who, who do people say that I am? And, and, and Peter says, you're the Messiah. And like, but now you're going to suffer? Like, what is happening? Never in this moment before this had anyone ever associated, in all of Israel, has associated the word suffering and Messiah. Like, these two things are incompatible in the Old Testament. This, this is not what the Messiah does. The Messiah is a king who conquers. The Messiah is the one who comes with might and power, not a suffering servant. And so in, in, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, is a reference to the Son of Man and what the Son of Man is coming to do. Here it is in verse 13. There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. It's prophecy. And to him was given, the Son of Man gets dominion, glory, kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament, is one who's going to come, defeat evil and injustice, make everything right in the world. And the Jewish people are like, we're waiting and we're longing for someone to come. Even in the midst of Rome and it, Rome, Roman Empire, someone to come and become king by might or force or power. March into Jerusalem and take control, a literal and physical king. And so words associated with the word Messiah would be victory and success, not suffering and death. And so crucified Messiah has, has, has no frame of reference in first century Jewish thought. And here comes Jesus talking about suffering 
rejection, being killed, and likely the most confusing of all, rising three days later. And so it's, it's one thing for Jesus as a Jewish rabbi to walk into Jerusalem and say, I will fight and I may die. That would actually make sense. But it's entirely other, other thing to say, this is actually why I came. I actually came to die. And I love that Max was just sharing, like, I knew Jesus as a teacher. Um, we look at um, Mark chapters 1 through 8, and we're like, I know Jesus as a miracle worker or a healer. But now he's saying, I'm much more than that. And something is going to shift. And so it's really easy when you look at this passage, to miss what Jesus is um, doing and describing. It's, a, it's an obvious turn, but one of the most brilliant things as I was reading and studying this week is that Jesus, right in the middle of Mark's gospel, is telling us what the gospel is. He's telling us about a historic event in time that saves us. He's telling us this. Jesus dies on our behalf, takes our sins, a criminal's death on the cross that we deserved, and he's like, that's where I'm heading. It's almost like now you want to go read verse, uh, chapters 9 through 16 and say, everything is thought through that lens, right? I don't know if you've ever read um, in Isaiah chapter 53, um, Isaiah prophesied uh, Jesus coming, and this is really brilliant here in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, scholars call this um, a spirituality of descent, a spirituality of dis descent, going downward. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the gospel right? Like the good news. That's what Jesus did for us. And that, that's, in, in one sense, that's why we're here, because we worship a wounded, suffering, and crucified God because he loved us. And so you read that, and it's like, that's crazy, right? Like, gee, that's crazy that Jesus would do that, that, that when we gather, we commemorate and remember and we proclaim that that right there is good news. That's, that's wild, that, that we would embrace that as good news, this gospel message. And I think from a, maybe, maybe just even from a cognitive level, we understand it. Sometimes it sinks down into our hearts. And I think what Jesus is doing here is really genius. He's displaying what's going to happen to him, and then he's inviting us to follow him into it. A spirituality of descent. He's saying... And, and we can grasp this, right? Jesus died on the cross for me. Like, that's a good thing, and, and we, we rest in that. And then what is he saying? Will you die to yourself? Will you follow me on the path to descent? Will you die with me? I, just, I know this sounds crazy. I'm going to get there, and we're going to try to understand this. But verse 30, 32 says, he said this plainly. I'm wondering what the disciples are thinking right there. It's like, okay, dude, that's a little much, right? And they are because look what, Peter, look what happens to Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And so Peter is like, Jesus, sidebar. 
right? Like sidebar, no more talking about suffering, death, or dying. Like bad words for the Messiah, all right? We're going to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, when we get there, we're going to do king stuff, all right? You are going to be king, and we have, we have Messiah stuff to do when we get there. And Mark is a little bit vague here, but Matthew actually explains um, what happens in Matthew chapter 16. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, said this, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Uh, this phrase, far be it from you, is like, God forbid, right? Like, you know when your grandma says that or something? Like, that will never happen. No, you know, he, he stands up, he's like, this is not what happens to messiahs. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs become kings. And I think what Peter is actually doing in this moment is he's envisioning his future. He's looking into the future, and he's thinking to himself, if Jesus marches into Jerusalem and he becomes king, I'm his right-hand man. I'll go boldly and courageously to sit next to Jesus as he becomes king in Jerusalem. Rome, we'll figure that out later. Not really worried about that right now. Let's be in Jesus' entourage. And then Jesus starts talking about suffering and death. And you know what happens? Peter's like, Jesus, no, 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 no. We're not going to go do that. Because if I get to Jerusalem then, it's not going to be good news, right? And so Peter's adamant, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, right? Try that next time someone cuts you in line as you're getting your coffee, all right? Behind me, Satan. He says, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's a cool um, play on words here. Um, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, there, it's explained um, how uh, Peter is renamed. And so Peter actually is, in the Greek, is Petros, and it actually means rock. And so there's a play on words that Jesus is using here. He's saying this word hindrance is uh, a stumbling stone, I think the NIV says, or it's like a stumbling rock. And so he's saying, Peter, the rock which I'm going to found my church on, you're becoming a stumbling stone. And it's a really interesting lesson for us is that um, solid people stumble, Right? People you think are like, they are my rock, they're like amazing, they fall short, right? And this is not an excuse, but in a time of, of, of church scandal and, it's, and, and, and abuse, it's actually um, worth noting that people sin, that people break promises, that people you look to and say, they were my rock in the past. I never thought that could happen to them. And this is what Jesus is saying to Peter, you, you, you are the rock. And I'm still going to do this through you, but in the moment, you're between me and what God has for me. One commentator said that the rebuke is sharp because the temptation is profound. Jesus is already wrestling enough. He doesn't need a friend to, to give him more of that, right? You're a stumbling block to me. Or Eugene Peterson's uh, message translation says, Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. <laughs> you, like, you don't get it. You don't, you don't know how God thinks. You don't know how God feels. You don't see like God sees. And I sort of wonder how often Jesus might be saying this to us. You have no idea how God works. You, you, you don't get it at all. I don't know about you, but I, um, when I read the Bible, I can, I can always relate to Peter, um, a little impulsive, saying things, you know, before I fully thought them through, um, walking around, probably prone to... Um, being pretty confident about my ability to understand what God is uh, doing or what God is saying. And in reality, I, I relate in this passage. You have no idea how God works, and some of us probably need some humbling in that way. But one of the things I was thinking about when Jesus says to Peter, 
get behind me. I was like, what if he just means that like in a very, like in a semi-literal sense? Like the correct place for a disciple or a learner or an apprentice of Jesus is behind the rabbi. Not out in front of the rabbi, but behind the rabbi. Simon, you're out of place. You're standing in between me and what God has for me. And so are we behind our rabbi following him are we sort of in a, a futile effort to get Jesus to follow us and to do what we want him to do? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ, right? Like, this is, this is not, this isn't an offer that we make to Jesus. Jesus died for us. He loves us, but Jesus is not following us. We are following Jesus. And I think it, we, sh- we would do well to be mindful of this because we have a tendency to slip in out ahead and think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and we cease to serve Jesus. And so, I think this, this, um, this interaction that Jesus and Peter um, have together here is a really great frame for understanding what Jesus is about to say next. Jesus is saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. And Peter is hearing, if I go to Jerusalem, I might face what Jesus faced. And I think that, um, I think Peter is upset, possibly angry here, because he had a vision um, for what you and I might call upward mobility, right? That was the thing that was on his mind, second in command in the kingdom. I think you and I would do the exact same thing. Like we would, Most of us would probably bounce quietly, actually, right? We'd just be like, <laughs> like sneak out the back. He's starting to say some crazy stuff, right? But Peter, Peter had an agenda, and it was leading him from strength to strength to strength. None of it included suffering. And so what is he thinking about? He's thinking about his career path. He's thinking about security. He's thinking about his status next to the king. And I think that if you and I are honest, we actually spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about how to flee suffering and pain in our life. Like it's it's actually one of our go-tos. And when you read this passage, it should probably bother you a little bit more than it does because you and I have a natural bent towards progress and upward mobility. Uh, just this week, um, I don't know if you saw the Mega Millions jackpot is up to uh, 660 million, and the cash option is 388 million. Did you see this? Crazy. I, I never bought lottery tickets in my life. I was like, I could go to the smoke shop downstairs. Like, Rose got some quarters. Like, I could buy a couple tickets. Um, just, and then I just, I let this thought linger, and I started daydreaming. Literally, I was daydreaming on Wednesday. I was like, what would I do if I won that? 388 million. I was like, I'd buy an apartment. Oh, I'd buy that Paradance building, you know, so we don't have to listen. We don't have to listen to other noise. I did. I thought these two things first. And then, and then I was like, oh, I want to get those boots that, like, I'm like, clearly I don't have enough vision for, for that much money because the third thing I thought about were a pair of $200 boots. Um, but dedicating our lives to economic growth is like completely normal. That is completely normal in our society. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with money. We, we understand this. This is another sermon. But I, I think the thing that we should think about here is that money promises abundance without dependence. Money promises abundance without dependence. And so here's what I mean is that I, even though, I, I, even though I'm, I'm already filtering through this, right? Like I was like, ooh, I, I want an apartment. Like I could find s- sustainability for our church in the long term. Like these are not terrible things to think about. But I'm thinking about ab- abundance and I'm thinking about a lack of relationship, right? 
I don't, want, I don't want to be dependent on somebody else. I don't want to have to have a relationship with someone at the front desk to come in here, right? I'm already thinking about how can I have mine without relying on other people? And this is what we begin to think about when we're following Jesus, is actually in what ways are we relying on other things? Are we depending on other things um, when we should be trusting? Or I think about, um, I like this idea of upward mobility because um, we're, we're, we're go-getters, right? Like we're trying to figure this out, right? We're trying to figure out how to, how to make it in the city, um, bounce um, from job to job, right, to increase pay. But like what if instead, um, because we're, we're not just um, relying on upward mobility, what if instead of just going from job to job because it pays more, what if we learn to evaluate and say, what can I actually learn here? How can I give back in my place of work? Or what about instead of just thinking about a nicer and newer apartment, you actually thought, what are the neighborhood dynamics at work here, and how might my privilege change the neighborhood dynamic that I'm moving into, right? And so because upward mobility is so normal for many of us, we actually need to pause and reevaluate because every little decision that you and I make is a vie for the person that we're becoming, and everything matters. Everything matters. And so what is Jesus' way? That's the way of upward mobility. What is Jesus' invitation? What's his way? His way is the way of the cross. I'm sorry today. Like this, is, uh, this, is, this is his way. And calling the crowd to him, and notice a delineation. He's talking to the disciples before. Now it's like he pulls everyone in. The crowd and his disciples are here. And he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And we'll just leave that up there. This is easily some of the wisest things ever penned and, and placed on paper. Jesus is putting his demands on us as a disciple. He's saying, this is what it means to follow me. Three things, desire, denial, and death. Desire, denial, and death. I love this. If anyone would come after me, it's kind of an ironic moment, like all of them are there listening to him. So he's like, if anyone would come after me, you guys are already all here, right? And then he says, this is the process of following me. This is the process of what's called discipleship. If anyone, the original language reads, desires to come after me. So discipleship first requires desire. What do you want? What do you want? What are you seeking? Why are you here? This is a real question. I'm glad you're here, but why are you here? Why are you here? What do you want? I think this is the first question. I don't even want to say of following Jesus. Like, this is the, the question of life and, like, all of the spiritual life is what do you want? Like, what do you actually want? And just the ability to name it in, like, an honest way. Like, I want friends. I want a spouse. I want to feel relief from grief or trauma. Um, I, I want to know how to have more meaning at work. Like, what do you want, ultimately? Because I think if we were actually be able to name this, then we could understand how to follow Jesus better if we're not already, or we might see that Jesus is the thing that we want. What do you want? That's the first question of discipleship, if anyone would desire me. The crowd is going where the food is, right? The crowd follows the food, and Jesus feeds the crowd. I love that about Jesus. The crowd follows the food. The crowd goes to events, and Jesus says, 
But if you want to take it a step further, if you want to take a step, here's what you got to do. And hear me well. Jesus is not pushy, and Jesus is not coercive. He's not a smooth talker, but Jesus really, really just loves us this well that he leaves, leaving him an option. That's how much Jesus loves us, is that he would actually say all of these things, and then he would say, if you want to be my disciple. Not, I'm commanding you to bow down and worship me, but like, if you want to leave, you can leave, right? And then he says, if you want to come to me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And so I just want to say a couple things here about denying yourself. It's important, I think, to really delineate this, particularly in an age of, um, like, mental and emotional struggles in our society. I don't think that Jesus is saying deny your personality, right? Deny who you are. Um, This is not about suppressing yourself or a form of self-loathing or self-denigration. He's talking about denying the parts of you that's bent in the wrong direction, the part of you that's actually turned inwardly, that actually filters every decision that you make through the self. He's saying deny that part of you, or Paul Paul calls it um, in Galatians, the flesh. He's saying, I want you to deny yourself in that ways, the things that are diametrically opposed to me in my ways, the self-gratification and the desires that you have bent inwardly on yourself. Deny those things. And then he says, take up your cross. And I don't know about you, but I, I read this this week, and I was like, I don't, I don't think about that enough. Like, there's something in me that's really opposed to this idea. I want a good life. I want an easy life. I don't want to struggle. I don't want a testimony. People that have testimonies have problems, right? Like, um, people that have testimonies, they got shot at some point, right? Like, I don't want this. I don't want any of this, right? But Jesus is, is saying, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to die. This is what I'm heading for. I'm going to die on a cross. And then he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take up your cross. <laughs> like, dude. Everyone in the first century knows what dying on a cross looks like. Crucifixion was specifically for people who had rebelled against authority, that authority generally being Rome. And so to take up your cross referred to the practice of condemning a person to carry their cross to their own execution site, right? And so the cross was an image of cruelty and dehumanization, um, a picture of shame, it... um, it brought hatred and oppression, and this was reserved for the lowest class criminal. In fact, Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. And you and I hear that, and you're like, well, we think of it differently, right? Like, we, have some, we, have, we wear crosses around our neck. We get crosses tattooed on our bodies. We put crosses on everything, right? On walls, on hillsides, in, in bedrooms. Um, the other day, I was riding my bike down um, 3rd Ave, and I saw, like, the most gigantic cross on the back of a dump truck. And I'm like, Why? Like, I, I, cool, I guess. I should be, I think it's cool, but I don't know. Look how far the symbol has come. We look at a cross, and what do we see? We see victory. We think somebody conquered that. The cross, when you wear a cross, you don't have Jesus on anymore. He's not there, right? He rose. And so when Jesus says, pick up your cross, he did not mean victory. We see victory. That's not what Jesus meant. And we can, we can allegorize this, and we can say, I have a cross to bear, you know, like, my cross to bear is like, you know, my knee hurts or like my mother-in-law is bothering me or whatever it is, you know. I mean, to say like, this test is my cross to bear. And that's, that's not what, what Jesus is saying, just like the daily struggles of our life. Taking up the cross would mean that a person is completely conquered, that their, their last act of their life would be to carry their instrument of death to their spot of death. And Jesus is saying, um, if you, I'm going to the cross, 
And anyone that follows me has to imitate and be willing to carry that with them. It was a complete and utter show of submission. And God takes that symbol and he subverts it for his good. And so, Jesus is calling us for, to self-denial and, and cross-bearing. What he's doing is he's actually claiming authority over us. If you so desire to follow me, then I'm claiming authority over you. And you're going to give over yourself and you're going to give your allegiance to him. We don't follow Jesus as he increasingly makes us upwardly mobile, right? But we follow him as he leads the way. I like how um, one commentator put it. This is the cruciform life. I got the next one. Um, the church lives a countercultural life of fidelity and love, generosity and justice, purity and promise keeping, nonviolence and peacemaking. And so I just want to, this is where I want to wrap up here is, is that, that the, the invitation to take up your cross was led by Jesus, and this is what it actually means to take up your cross. It means that we would live a life of fidelity and love, generosity and justice, purity and promise keeping, nonviolence and peacemaking. And so you think about the cross, you think about Jesus, fidelity and love, faithful till the very end, generosity and justice. Jesus gave, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He's generous with his son. Justice, Jesus is walking around freeing the oppressed. Purity and promise keeping. Jesus was the only sinless person to ever walk the earth. Nonviolence and peacemaking. Jesus is walking around making peace with others so that we can both have peace with God and peace with other people. And so a cruciform life is looking at this and saying, that's what I choose to do. I choose that instead of my way. I choose faithfulness and love instead of hatred and giving up. I choose generosity and giving my life and my money away for those, for others and those are on the margins purity and promise keeping, this is where it gets harder, right? Like purity, like it's a, it's a tough word in our culture, right? Purity, like that's, that sounds so stifling, right? To suppress yourself in that way. Nonviolence and peacemaking. Violence is, is endemic in our culture. And Jesus is saying the way of the cross is a spirituality of descent. It's down. And so you don't evaluate your life and your daily decisions any longer on um, are my bank accounts growing? Am I killing it at work? Um, do people like me? But rather, the way of the cross is saying, am I going to be committed no matter what? Am I going to be obedient and do what Jesus says? Am I going to be faithful till the end? This is the call of following Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is self-denial, sacrifice, and commitment. And let me tell you something, deep, deep, deep down, you know there's something beautiful about that. The most beautiful thing in the world is sacrifice. I, I've been married for, um, for seven years, and I was thinking a lot this week about um, my marriage and the ways that it's um, hopefully, and um, we fall short definitely, um, but hopefully rooted in the cross. That self-denial. I want to be a person in my marriage that says, you before me. That's going to take me places. That's going to get me somewhere. Sacrifice, right? I'll get up with the baby. I struggle with that, but still. Commitment. I'm with you, I love you, and I'm for you no matter what. 
You want to be in a relationship with someone who's, who's not faithful? Sounds terrible, right? And so one of the most beautiful things in the world is sacrifice. And this is the way of the cross, and this is the invitation of Jesus. And I just want to read this, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it like this. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But listen to this. But look to Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. You want life? Get Christ, everything else thrown in. And so here's what I want to do. If you just want to close your eyes, um, before we take communion today, no hype, um, no music, just just some quiet and some prayer, I just want to ask you a question. What is God saying to you? And maybe you want to grab your phone or um, open a note on your phone. Maybe you just want to sit in silence. What is God saying to you right now by His Spirit? Maybe it's about sacrifice. Maybe it's about self-denial or humility or a sin that you're struggling with. I'm just going to leave about a minute of space. The band can come up. What is God saying to you?